Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. I want to thank you for joining me. I'm so glad to share these few moments with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I want to encourage you, look for us on Facebook, we're there too, and then subscribe to the podcast. That way you can always get the next message. But let's turn our attention to this week's message. We're in the second week of a series on forgiveness. Last week, I talked about your need and my need, everybody's need for forgiveness. Without forgiveness, you cannot have life, and the holy presence of God will remain closed to you. Fortunately, Jesus has purchased forgiveness for you, and he's opened the doorway to the presence of God and to the holy life for anyone who would receive. This week, I want us to return to the same biblical text. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I want us to go there and walk through that story again and look for the definition of forgiveness, because biblical forgiveness is found in that passage. There's four steps that are there that we need to see. Let's begin with a story, though. A golfer had been playing very poorly. So badly that he finally decided he needed help, he went to a psychiatrist to get some help. And the psychiatrist told him to relax by playing a round of golf without the golf ball. Do everything you would normally do, but use an imaginary ball, advised the psychiatrist. The golfer tried it the next day. He stepped up onto the first tee. He imagined that he got a 260-yard drive, made a fine approach shot to the green, and then putted for par. It was wonderful. The round went splendidly, and he... And as he approached the 18th hole, he met another golfer who was playing the same way, no golf ball. The other golfer had seen the same psychiatrist. They decided, well, let's play the last hole together. And then they thought, let's bet $10 on the outcome. Yeah, I know the story's getting strange here. So the first golfer swung at his imaginary ball and announced that it had gone 280 yards right down the middle of the fairway. The second golfer matched his drive. The first fellow then took out his five iron, and after swinging at his imaginary ball, he exclaimed, look at that shot. It went right over the pin, and then the reverse spin on it brought it right back and into the hole. I win! Oh, no, you don't, said the second golfer. You hit my ball. (sighs) Yeah, it's a silly story, I know. Imaginary golf works by yourself, but as soon as two or more people try to compete, you need something more real. You need something that is more objective and easy to follow, like a real golf ball. And we need real forgiveness, something that actually has some structure to it that we can follow along. Now, I want to state again, and it was true of last week's sermon, and it's true of this one, a lot of today's sermon is based on Timothy Keller's book, Forgive. I highly recommend the book. I will caution you, it's a book that takes some time to digest, and it will push you hard on how you understand and practice forgiveness. But today's message takes a lot from that book. I want to say this, and I want you to hear it clearly. Real forgiveness is biblical. It is cross-shaped. It identifies the truth of the matter. 
It views the wrongdoer with empathy. It cancels the debt. And then it seeks reconciliation. There are four steps there. And all four of those steps can be found in the parable of the unmerciful servant. Now, I want to read that story for you again. We read it last week. We're going to come back and read it now here. But I want you to listen for those four steps to forgiveness. Identifying the truth of the matter. Views the wrongdoer with empathy. Cancels the debt and then seeks reconciliation. So, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Society has made several attempts at forging its own version of forgiveness. It helps when we're talking about biblical forgiveness to identify these attempts, these false forgivenesses, because they seem logical, they are even practical, and they're somewhat biblical but you cannot let them stand in place of real biblical forgiveness. So, ultimately, these counterfeit forgivenesses are powerless, and they cannot make good on their own promises to set you free. So, I want to take a moment here, just real quickly, identify these three types of counterfeit forgivenesses, and then we'll get into the dimensions, the four steps of biblical forgiveness. So, the first counterfeit counterfeit forgiveness that I want to lay out for you here is cheap forgiveness. This is a fake forgiveness that's focused on making people feel better. It's therapeutic forgiveness. The appeal here is to move on, for everybody to be okay, to avoid making a fuss, avoid a mess. Let's all forget this and just move on, is the type of words you're going to hear with cheap forgiveness. The danger here, though, is that cheap forgiveness asks nothing of the wrongdoer or the victim. Cheap forgiveness is often used by the offenders or the abusers to coerce their victims to quickly and painlessly restore them to a position of trust. This sort of forgiveness allows abuse to thrive 
and it permits sin to survive. Cheap forgiveness puts power in the hands of the wrongdoer. The second type of uh, false or counterfeit forgiveness is earned forgiveness. Cheap forgiveness says forgiveness is owed. Let's just do it and get it over with. Here, earned forgiveness, well, it's earned. You got to deserve it. It's focused on making the wrongdoer pay for forgiveness. The perpetrator is forgiven if and only if they are sufficiently sorry, if they beg, if they've proved they've changed. The appeal here, why it's so attractive, is that it takes power away from the wrongdoer and puts it in the hand of those who are wronged. Our culture today is especially, this is especially prominent when dealing with minorities, with, with uh, ladies, with uh, the poor. Um, anybody who's in a position that's perceived to have little or no power, they like this. Our culture likes this because it puts power in the hands of those who don't normally have it. There's another appeal in earned forgiveness. It's that um, in earned forgiveness, the wrongdoer has to show that they're reformed, that they've earned trust, that they've changed. But there's a danger with earned forgiveness. It's really more of a form of discipline than it is forgiveness. It's not forgiveness at all. At worst, earned forgiveness is ultimately, the forgiveness in it is given when the perpetrator has been determined to have been wounded sufficiently. Ah, you wrongdoer, you've paid enough. At best, it's an attempt to merit grace, to earn it. But for grace to be grace, it's got to be free. It's got to be an undeserved gift. Timothy Keller raises an important question, and he writes, Is it right for the victim to be the only one who determines what the wrongdoer deserves? Is it solely their right to, to declare the wrongdoer absolved? And that's where we begin to see the problem. In the first one, cheap forgiveness, power is left in the hand of the wrongdoer. In earned forgiveness, power is put in the hands of the victim, the one who has been wronged. There's no balance. Now, a third type of counterfeit forgiveness is really actually no forgiveness at all. It's just that. It's no forgiveness. This option abandons forgiveness altogether and focuses just on justice. It claims that forgiveness, it just lets people off the hook and that forgiveness is even opposed to justice. We don't want that. It's appealing because it ensures that people get what they deserve. They get justice. But no forgiveness is dangerous because it becomes hyper-focused on justice with no way for relief. And simply put, without forgiveness, life is unbearable. I've got a longer quote here from a man named Alab Jacobson. Great, great quote, worth listening to a couple times. You may want to re-listen to it in the podcast here, but I want to read this quote from Alan Jacobson. He says, When society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains a sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. 
Social media serve as a crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the exorable law of diminishing returns. The mania of punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. There's a lot to think about right there. And I have to admit, I think I agree. When you really look at our society, vindictiveness is the sin that runs rampant. And we often call it a good thing. And yeah, I know a lot of people who get a pleasure out of pointing out wrongdoers. I have to admit, something that all of us, myself included, struggle with. So those are three types of counterfeit forgiveness. Cheap forgiveness, earned forgiveness, and no forgiveness at all. But what about biblical forgiveness? How do you know that you're giving and receiving forgiveness that is real and powerful and effective and not one of those other counterfeit forgivenesses? Well, first, real forgiveness must always begin with God. If you leave His divine power and authority out of the equation— the forgiveness you practice will always come up short. But our text that we just read from Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant gives us four steps, assuming that you have God in the process. It gives us four steps on how to practice biblical forgiveness. And it starts with telling the truth. In Matthew 18, the situation is set up very simply. There's a king and a servant. The king wants to settle his counts and his serv- uh, with his servants, and one of those servants owes 10,000 bags of gold. He can't pay. The debt is owed, and there's a problem. In just a few words, the situation is named, and the, ser- the servant cannot pay the debt. For forgiveness to work, truth is necessary. And if you want to seek or grant forgiveness, you must be truthful about the situation. Now, I want to caution you to be very careful with the truth. You're going to have feelings. The depth of your hurt that you have from whatever happened, those feelings and the depth of your hurt, that's important, but they can distort the reality, the truth of the situation. Identify very clearly the wrong that has happened. And that means offering neither a caricature exaggerating and emphasizing traits disproportionately, nor offering a mask that hides or denies the reality of the wrongdoing. Pretending that everything is okay or not a big deal, hiding it, is an active denial of the truth. And it will get in the way of forgiveness. Austin O'Malley says this about lies but it's a way of thinking about truth. Those that think it permissible to tell white lies, they soon grow colorblind. The last part of telling the truth is that the wrongdoing needs to be identified as punishable. The seriousness of the sin needs to be felt. And in Matthew 18, the punishment, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but very real. The crime is a punishable one. Forgiveness works when we understand the danger of our actions. Empathy is the second step. The challenge found here is to see the person who wronged you as more like you than they are different from you. And I know that's hard to do because people do monstrous things and they even become monsters. And I'm not diminishing what anybody has done to you. 
but it is easy to create a divide between yourself and the bad people over there. The older I get, the more I understand, the more I understand that some of the most dangerous words we speak as humans is us and them. The divide is dangerous because it gives us permission to treat them in the ways in ways we wouldn't otherwise. The Bible puts every person on level ground in the eyes of God, both for good and bad. Each one of us is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity. I'd share with you James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. So, we're all worth, worthy, and we all deserve dignity, but we're also all sinners and unrighteous. In Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So, we all stand in the same place of sin and in the same place of glory. And Matthew 18, this empathy comes in the form of pity. The king sees the sorry state of the servant and sees him not just as a wrongdoer needing punished, but as someone who is of worth and deserves and needs forgiveness. C.S. Lewis writes, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. The third step of forgiveness is to cancel the debt. Forgiveness is costly. In our story, the king absorbs the debt owed to the kingdom. Uh, It's no small amount of money. Last week, I mentioned to you those bags of gold. That's the word talent. And talent represents a year's wage. In other words, that servant owes the king 10,000 years wages. Yeah, some people did the math on it, and it adds up to $400 billion. It's no small thing for the king to absorb this debt. And such a debt today would jeopardize a lot of the nations on our world. Canceling the debt means you're choosing to shoulder the cost. And it also puts a limit on your demands over the wrongdoer. It says, okay, we're done now. I have no more demands on you. But there's a limit. And it's a very real limit. Timothy Keller puts it like this. Forgiveness means that when you want to make them suffer... Instead, you refuse to do it. We have the ultimate model of absorbing the debt in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 read like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The fourth step, the final step, is to reconcile. After last week's message, I had several people come up to me afterwards and ask, well, what if the person I need to forgive would hurt me again if I let them back into my life? I know that's not easy. I'm not sure you should just let them back in the way things were. Let's go back to Timothy Keller to a moment. 
for a moment here. When being interviewed about this very question, he responded this way. He said, I don't actually think that if someone has forgiven me, that means they have to trust me. Forgiven people are not necessarily automatically restored exactly where they were. You have to have time to rebuild trust in people, and you need to recognize that you need to recognize that and not resent it if they don't trust you right away. Without a doubt, reconciliation is the hardest part of forgiveness. Reconciliation in human terms takes time. Trust must be built. Reconciliation doesn't mean going back to the way things were, but going forward into a new sort of relationship. In the Christian faith, we say after receiving salvation that you are a new creation, a new thing. You're not what you were, you're something new now. I think it's the same when you seek to restore someone. You don't go back to what it was. You say, we're going to figure out how to do something new. Maybe that has boundaries on it that say, this is new and I can't let you in and hurt my family. Or maybe it does have a boundary that says, yeah, we're going to do a new relationship. I'm not asking you to put yourself into a dangerous situation. Don't put yourself into a situation that would mean you're taken advantage of or abused. But there are some lessons that we can learn about reconciliation in the parable of the unmerciful servant. First, the reconciliation is very real. In our story, the unmerciful servant, when he's forgiven of his debt, 10,000 bags of gold, gold, he's set free. He's restored to the kingdom. He gets to be a servant again. He gets to be a citizen again. Secondly, reconciliation in that parable is not naive. That servant, he's not just permitted to mistreat others, to, 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 to damage others. The king brings swift justice upon him when he tries to choke that fellow servant for their debt. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly from this story, there's this lesson. Reconciliation comes from both sides. And in our story that we read, the king sought reconciliation and that unmerciful servant he actually did not. He was more about selfishness than survival. Forgiveness must move towards reconciliation, but reconciliation is limited by free will. You need to hear this very clearly. There's two sides to reconciliation. There's your part And you will succeed in forgiveness as much as you are growing in your relationship with God, as much as you are keeping bitterness and anger out. If you're harboring it, bitterness and anger will limit how much you can reconcile with a person. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 15 says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. God's saying, don't let that bitterness be in your life. Don't harbor it. It's going to get in the way of restoration. So, there's your part. You got to do. And if you're not willing to do your part, you're going to struggle in forgiveness. But there's also the other's part. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, you might think that's a strange verse for me to read because it talks about you again. We're talking about the other, but now I mention you. 
Romans 12 calls you to live as much as possible at peace with everyone. You and I are reminded that we are often the biggest limit to restored relationships, but you can only control you in restoring a relationship and living at peace with someone. If the other one doesn't care, if the other doesn't change, if the other only seeks selfishness, there's nothing you can do. Timothy Keller writes, anyone who truly forgives is open to reconciliation, to the restoration of the relationship. That, however, is dependent on the response of the one who forgiveness is extended to. In our story, the king cannot make the unmerciful servant want to restore the relationship. But the king does everything possible to reconcile. The king makes sure that he is ready. And you, if you want to walk through the process of forgiveness biblically, you need to do everything possible on your part. That's the biblical example we are given in God. So, you are going to have to speak truth about the situation. You're going to have to look with empathy on the other. You are going to have to walk through the process of canceling the debt. You are going to have to see what it takes to reconcile as much as it depends upon you. We've got an example in God. How does God work through the steps of forgiveness with sinners? Does he wait to even lift a finger until any old sinner comes to him and says, yeah, I think I could use forgiveness? Certainly not. Thank goodness God has not waited for us to ask first. God identified the truth of the sin. He has seen the sinner's perspective and taken pity upon us. He has canceled the debt by the power of Jesus on the cross, and he'll restore and reconcile his relationship with you. But that part does depend on you. But he's waiting and he is ready. Jesus has paid the price for your sins. And the question is, is will you receive that forgiveness? Will you be restored to him? God's done everything else up to this point. Perhaps this morning, You need to ask God to help you walk through the steps of forgiveness with someone who has wronged you. It's going to start with your own relationship with God. For most of us, we have to work on us. We have a lot of work that needs done in us. That's got to be done first. For my part... I need to walk with truth. I need to walk with empathy. I need to work on canceling the debt. I need to get myself prepared. And then, after I've done work with my relationship with God and then let God work on me, then I go to the person who wronged me. Will you do that with others today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, help me to practice such forgiveness towards the people in my life. Help me to do the hard work. Help me not to let a bitter root grow up in me. Help me to do my part to live at peace with everyone. Lord, it's my prayer that by practicing forgiveness, that Jesus would be glorified and that more and more would receive forgiveness through him. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.